Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we ask these things not because of our own righteousness, but because of your great mercy. We recognize as well that it is no small thing to take your name upon our lips, but nevertheless, we have done so. We have addressed you as our Father, and we have done this not of our own accord, but because you have called us to do this. It is our great privilege, in fact, to gather as your people, bearing your name, and to worship you as God and King and Creator and Redeemer and, yes, Father. And we do that this morning, glorying in you. You are our God, and we are your people. You would have it no other way, and for this we give you thanks. We think of our brothers and sisters this morning as well, those gathered at Kennewick Baptist Church. We pray for Pastor Dustin and the congregation that you would give them a deeper and abiding joy in Christ as they grow in grace. We also continue to pray for our friends just next door at the Royal Columbian. We ask for their spiritual encouragement and health and safety, at the same time asking that you would draw them unto Christ, your Son and their Savior. We also lift up before you the work of Grace Clinic. Supply them, we pray, with both physical and spiritual well-being, particularly to the patients uh, who are there and part of Grace Clinic. Your word also instructs us to intercede for those in authority over us, and so we pray this morning for our sheriffs, Tom Crosscree and Jim Raymond, that you would grant these men a fear of you and that they might protect us and serve us well. Then we also pray for Mike and Cecilia Palm, missionaries serving in Papalote, Mexico. As they continue to serve the pastors and the missionaries at that seminary, we ask that you would grant to Mike and Cecilia wisdom and patience and joy. And as you do this, please cause both Mike and Cecilia to do their work heartily unto you, knowing that from your hand they will most assuredly receive a reward. We would also be diligent to pray for the people of Papalote, asking that your spirit would till the soil of their hearts so that there would be a great harvest of righteousness there as people receive Christ. More than that, we would pray the same, really, for the many unreached people scattered abroad. We ask that you would raise up churches and that you would raise up missionaries and that you would raise up support so that the gospel would go forward and that new churches would be planted and that Christ's kingdom would expand. We are confident of this, Father, not because we recognize that we have particular giftings or because we just happen to be an optimistic people, but we, we expect this, we're confident of this because of the promise of your word. We are told that just as the waters cover the sea, so we long for the day in which the knowledge of Christ and his glory will fill the earth. And so we pray to that end even now. As we turn our hearts and minds to, to ourselves, to this congregation, we pray that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. 
Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we would know what is the hope to which you have called us. Not to mention something of the riches of your glorious inheritance in us. And on top of that, enable us to comprehend something of the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us. A power on full display when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We would ask you, Father, that you would grow us in our knowledge of you. That, that you would also further conform us to Christ, your Son. We pray the words of John the Baptist that, that we would decrease and that he would increase. Make us more like him and less like us. And cause our relationships with one another to deepen as well. So quickly and so easily we resort to the superficial, the sort of the building of walls and the putting on of masks. We pray this morning that you would forgive us and that you would help us to truly love one another and serve one another, and in so doing, cause us to grow up in grace together. We pray for the week that you have given to us, asking that it would be a week where our daily lives at work and at home would bring honor to you. Enable us by your Spirit to do good and to commend your gospel to our children, our neighbors, and our co-workers. We also pray for the many physical needs that we have. There are those in our church who need gainful employment, so we pray that you would provide at that level. Others are sick and hurting, so we ask you to sustain and to heal. And then there are those undergoing surgeries and fighting various diseases, so we pray you deal with them gently and that you would encourage them and that you might restore their health as you see fit. In that vein, we want to offer public thanks for how you have brought Jonathan Perry home to his family. Please strengthen this young man, extend his life, and glorify yourself through him. Finally, we approach your throne of grace seeking mercy and help with respect to evangelism. We confess to you that quite often we live lives of apathy and indifference, craving ease and peace and comfort. We confess this all to you, even now, asking that you might see fit to give us a burden for souls. We know that we are supposed to engage those around us with the gospel. We simply don't. And so we pray that you would stir in us a spirit of zeal and evangelism. Now, at this time, we confess our desperate need for your spirit we will remain just as we are, as your word is read and preached, unless your Holy Spirit comes and does a work of grace in our hearts. So please, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to receive your word today. We ask all of these things of you, Father, in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. We do so for our good and for your glory. And all of God's people said, Amen. Brothers and sisters, please open up in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 6. And as you were doing so, please stand, if you would, for the reading of God's holy word. Uh, we are going to zero in this morning on Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10.
Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. As one of your pastors, Redeeming Grace, allow me a moment to prophesy. Are you ready? If, if you head down to the river this afternoon, you will not be able to walk across it. What you will quickly discover is that you need a towel. Or, let's say you head out to your roof this afternoon and you quickly step off. You will immediately find yourself falling. In that case, you won't need a towel. You will need crutches. And regardless of what you hear on the news this evening, men can't get pregnant. That privilege and responsibility has been given to women. So those are my prophecies for all you charismatics. You can't walk on water. You won't be able to flap your arms fast enough to fly. And only women give birth. But of course, none of those are prophecies, are they? Really, they are just an observation. Observation that comes, observations that come really from being made in God's image and living in God's world. Or, if I can go up the same thing from a slightly different direction, this is God's world, and God has made this world to operate in certain ways. And one of those ways is this. What you sow, you reap. That's a law. That's a, a principle that is built into creation itself. So, for example... If you plant tomato seeds in your garden, you shouldn't expect an oak tree. If you plant strawberries, don't cross your fingers hoping for radishes. That would be nuts. We know this. We know that whatever you stuff in the ground, well, you should expect to reap what you planted. Now, here's the catch. And this is Paul's whole point this morning. This principle is true, not just agriculturally, but also spiritually. In other words, this is a principle that is not only operative just out back in your garden, but also in your soul. What you sow, you will reap. We know this to be the case because of how Paul applies this proverbial saying. He warns us in verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So again, that's the principle. But then look how Paul applies it to our spiritual lives. He says, verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap 
eternal life. You catch that? There are two soils, aren't there? There is the soil of your flesh, and then there is the soil of the Spirit. And likewise, there are two harvests. If you sow to the one field, the field of the flesh, then you will reap a harvest of corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, Paul says, you will reap a harvest of eternal life. So given the seriousness of all of this, corruption on the one hand, eternal life on the other, it is more than incumbent upon us to clearly understand what this sowing entails. Let's start with the flesh. What is Paul saying? Well, let's begin by noting the nature of this soil. Paul calls it the flesh, or more specifically in verse 8, the one who sows to his own flesh. And what's being referred to here, brothers and sisters, is really our old nature. That's what the flesh is. Think of your old habits, your old life before you were converted. Don't make the mistake and read flesh here and think bones, skin, ligaments. That's not the point. Your flesh is your fallen nature. It's your sinful desires. It's that ugly, selfish you that was at war with God before the Spirit of God intervened and opened your eyes to see and savor Jesus Christ. That's the soil. That's your flesh. And rather than sow into that toxic and contaminated field, what are we called to do? Well, simply put, we ought to avoid it like the plague. Or to dispense with the metaphor, we as Christians are not called to coddle our sin, but to crucify our sin. Which means, beloved, to sow to one's flesh is really to do what? Please hear this. To pander to it. To give in to it. To coddle it. And if we do that, if we pander to our flesh, if we give in to it, if we coddle it, we shouldn't be surprised when we reap what we've sown. Let me give you some examples, some ways that this principle is worked out in real life. Let's say for a moment that you stay up all night playing video games and watching YouTube videos, you know, just wasting your life. Let's say that you do that and you oversleep the next morning. Well, chances are you are going to be late for school or worse, you're going to lose your job. Or let's say that you constantly speed and defy any and all traffic laws. Well, it's only a matter of time till you lose your driver's license. Or let's say you spend your weekends at the club dressed like you belong at a brothel. If you do those sorts of things, you shouldn't be surprised by the caliber of men that you attract. Don't complain about no good men when you surround yourself with bums, ladies. Or let's say that you refuse to forgive someone who has sinned against you. Rather than forgive that person, you really dig your heels in. 
Know this, sooner or later, and probably sooner than you think, bitterness and resentment will eat your soul and leave you hollow. Or, let's suppose that you spend your life smoking cigarettes. You should expect the doctor to, doctor to walk into the room and say something like, I'm sorry, but you have lung cancer. My point in all of this is simply this. Seeds go into the ground, and something eventually comes out of the ground. And what will come out, here's the point, is what you put in. Again, whatever one sows, verse 7, that will he also reap. And so we are warned. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. What you are planting, beloved, you will harvest. That's the point. There's an old adage, and it's true. It goes like this. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And we have to understand that that is true, whether for good or ill. And so we are warned to know this principle, to lean into it, to not think that you or I are the exception to the rule. What you sow, you will reap. Which means, and here I'll just defer to John Stott, he says every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fancy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Stock goes on to say, every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we, this is going to date Stott, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we are sowing to the flesh. And so as Christians, we ought to spend our time and energy sowing to the Spirit. In other words, what I, what I don't want you to miss is this. You are going to sow, right? You're, you're going to sow. Seed is going to go into the ground. That part is unavoidable. The question is not, are you sowing seed? The question is, what field are you sowing in? Are you sowing in the flesh or the spirit? So just as we did with the nature of the fleshly soil, let's note this soil. Again, the middle of verse 8 says, but the one who sows to the Spirit. And, and this here refers to our new nature in Christ. We've been made new. We've seen this throughout Galatians, right? Our sins have been forgiven. We've been imputed Christ's very righteousness. And, and we have been ushered into the family of God, not as like sort of ugly stepchildren, but as God's own beloved and just as the Spirit of God dwelt in the old covenant tabernacle and later the temple, 
Now we are told, in this new covenant era, the Spirit of God has taken up residence where? In us. We are His people. And as the people of God, we really are the temple of the living God. That's who we are. That's now our identity. We are loved by the Father. We are redeemed by Christ. And we are partakers of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, as those who belong to the Spirit, we ought to be those who sow to the Spirit. Which means that we ought to till the soil. Or to dispense with the metaphor, when it comes to our flesh, we aren't to coddle it, but crucify it. Here, when it comes to the Spirit, we ought to cultivate it. That is to say, sowing to the Spirit is really just another way of saying, go back to the end of Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16. Be led by the Spirit. Galatians 5.18. Church, we are to keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5.25. Now, sometimes Christians will hear this. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. And we sort of, are, we sort of instantly respond with sort of weird esoteric, subjective feelings and liver shivers and dry fleeces and wet grass. That is not at all what we see in the text of Scripture. In, in very practical terms, the way that we cultivate good spiritual fruit, the way that we walk by the Spirit and are led by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit is simply by using the means of grace that God has given to us. Which is another way of saying that we ought to gather when the people of God gather. That we ought to worship the way that God has prescribed us to do so. That we ought to give attention to the Word. That we ought to observe the sacraments. And that we ought to be devoted to prayer. That is how the soil is tilled and cultivated and made fruitful. God has given the church these means of grace. And we ought to avail ourselves of those means of grace. And while I have no intention of turning God into sort of this cosmic vending machine, you know what I mean, where we sort of, we put in our 50 cents, we hit C7, and we get whatever we want, we don't want to go there. But at the same time, if we sow to the Spirit, well, we shouldn't be surprised when we reap what we have sown. Let me make it very simple, very practical. If you carve out time for private devotions and you read God's Word in a systematic way, you will grow in your understanding of Scripture and of who God is. Or if you meditate on Christ and the world to come, Colossians 3, right? If, if you set your minds on things above, well, then you will find yourself freed in many ways from the chains of the earth. Beloved, let me submit to you that if you get off of Facebook and you get on your knees, then your will will be more aligned with Christ's than if you didn't. 
Husbands and fathers, when you turn off the television and you make family worship a priority in your home, it should be no big shock. Your family will be knit closer together and your children will flourish in the faith. Uh, Fathers, know this. Your children are being catechized. The question is not if. The question is into what. Who or what is catechizing your children? Is it Disney? Is it TikTok? Or is it you? Or when you fix your attention, Philippians 4.8, on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, well, your mind and your heart will be captivated by God and by His glory and by something of the beauty of the world that God has made for us. Or if you put yourself out there and you seek to pour into the lives of those around you, I don't mean your cliques, I mean those who are actually different from you in the church. When you do that, you will quickly discover how small your problems are. You know, the ones that you thought spelled the end of the world for you. Beloved, if you would build your life around the local church, gather when she gathers, worship when she worships, and avail yourself of the means of grace then you will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, your Savior. And Christian, when you wean yourself off the poisonous pleasures of this world, and instead you gorge yourself on the gospel of grace bought and paid for in the death of Christ, well, then you will find yourself loving others and serving others rather than loving yourself and expecting everyone to serve you. You see, Calvin was right. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. But the more you sow to the Spirit, the more you sabotage that perverse factory. So the point, beloved, is simply this. Again, don't miss this. You and me, We are always putting seeds in the ground. There is no vacation from this. You never take time off. You never punch out. We live in God's world, and God has so ordered the world that we are always sowing. The question then is this, what field are you planting in? Ask yourself this question and and be honest enough to answer it honestly. Are you sowing to the flesh, or are you sowing to the Spirit? What's the soil that you are tilling? What seed is going in? Which field is getting all of the attention? Here's why this is important. Just as there are two fields, so there are also two harvests. Put your eyes again on verse 8. Notice what the apostle tells us. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap, and and here's now the first harvest, he'll reap corruption. But, middle of verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap, and, and here's the other harvest now, he will reap eternal life. So make no mistake about it. You will either reap corruption or eternal life. Those are the only two options. Now, just so we're all on the same page, 
the word that Paul uses here for corruption in verse 8, it conveys the idea of a putrid corpse in the process of decomposition. It's quite the, the vivid picture, isn't it? One that is no doubt by design. What you should imagine in your eye is the, the side of this rotting body in front of you, not to mention the smell. Or to return to the agricultural metaphor, this fruit, if, if we can even call it that, is rotten to the core. If you were to bite into it, you'd discover it to be rancid. In fact, it would make you sick if you put it to your mouth. You see, Paul is going out of his way to communicate a critically important truth, and that is this. Sowing to the flesh, or or to really just get down to brass tacks, if, if we live a life that only manifests the works of the flesh, remember Galatians 5, well, that leads only to death and decay and destruction. Beloved, it leads to hell. And That's the point. That's why the vulgar picture of a stinky and rotten corpse is the one that Paul uses here. He wants you to see and to feel and, yes, to smell the heinousness of it all. If we continue to indulge in the works of the flesh, moving deeper and deeper into the pit of depravity, then we can be certain of the harvest that we will receive. And that will be a harvest of corruption. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, he cautions us this way. Warning of of sin and seeking to rouse us from our slumber, Brooks says this, Greater sins do sooner starter the soul and awaken us and rouse us up to repentance than lesser sins do. Sometimes you have to interpret the Puritans, right? In other words, big, heinous sins in our life, they often cause us to pause and to take inventory. Like, where did that come from? But not so with the so-called lesser sins. Those sins, and this is the point that Brooks is making, those sins are the ones that we tend to keep around as pets. We'll keep them on a leash, but we're sort of treating them as if they're part of the family. Brooks alerts us. Little sins often slide into the soul and breed and work secretly and undiscernibly in the soul till they come to be so strong, Brooks says, to trample upon the soul and to cut the throat of the soul. You see, that too is a vivid language. It's graphic by design. Damnation is what awaits those who sow to the flesh. They have planted their seeds, and what they will reap is corruption. But in contrast, and a blessed contrast it is, the harvest that awaits the Christian, the one who sows to the Spirit, is what? End of verse 8, eternal life. You see, seeds go in the ground that you plant, and then when the harvest comes, what you get is eternal 
life. What a joy. What a glory this is. What a promise that we have from Christ, our Redeemer. Christ has come, and He has come for you and I, and He has come to give of His life that we might have life, eternal life. That's why the blood of Christ was shed. Remember, the Scriptures teach us that the life is in the blood, Leviticus 17.11. Well, so eternal life is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, let's be clear. Eternal life, at least biblically speaking, is not just long life. Now, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. Eternal life is more glorious than just you and I existing for many, many days. Eternal life is glory. Eternal life is immortality. It's resurrection. Eternal life is not only you and I being delivered from the penalty and the power of sin, but eternal life is our deliverance from the very presence of sin. I would say think about that for a moment, but I don't think that you and I can. We don't have categories for that. But there is a day on the horizon, or back to the metaphor of fruit to be harvested, right? In which sin will not only be altogether eradicated from our hearts, as glorious as that is, but from all of creation itself. It will be gone. It will not exist. Even more glorious than that? You see, eternal life is not just being sinless. It is being Saviorful. That is to say, eternal life is you and me, us, we, the church, enjoying the blessed presence of our Creator and our Redeemer forever. It is to be in the presence of our King and to find our greatest joy by being in His presence. That's eternal life. It's not just the forgiveness of sins, as glorious as that might be, but to be forgiven our sins and to be clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, you have to understand it is all a means to an end. The end, you ask? To be in the blessed presence of Jesus Christ forever. And I truly pray that you would see that. That you would see that our sins are forgiven and that we are given the very righteousness of Christ not so that we can spend unending days on a cloud with a half-naked baby cherub playing a dumb harp. Does that sound fun to anybody? Our sins are forgiven and we are made righteous in Christ so that we can be with Him. That is what Christ accomplished. It's what he died to accomplish. It's what he rose from the dead to enact, and you'd better believe it's what Christ will return to consummate. And you know what all of it's called? Eternal life. Now, with all of that good news ringing in your ears, I so pray that you don't make the mistake of thinking, 
Okay, I think I have my bearings about me. Eternal life, then, must be the result of my great farming, of my great sowing, of my great planting. That's not the point. You can't grab a few verses, particularly verses 7 and 8, uproot them from the garden of God's grace, and make them all about you and how well you perform. You know, the rich irony, of course, in all of that is that that would be to take up the mantle of the Judaizers, those very opponents of Paul that sparked the writing of this letter in the first place. Remember, if Galatians has taught us anything, it is this. Christ is enough. Christ has done it all for us. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our life. And the only way that we ever lay hold of Christ and all the glories of his gospel is simply by faith and by faith alone. So let's be clear. Eternal life is a gift. One that is based on believing, not doing. But... As Philip Ryken, the great Presbyterian minister, has put it, believers are doers. We're doers. And although no one is ever saved by their works, no one is ever saved without them either. And so on the last day, the harvest Christians will reap is a harvest of eternal life. And Christians will have sown to the Spirit. Or if you want to use the language of Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit will be manifest in our lives. So hear this. Christians are born of the Spirit. Christians sow to the Spirit. Christians bear fruit of the Spirit. And Christians will reap eternal life from the Spirit. But none of that means that we make ourselves Christians. Your sowing to the Spirit, for example, doesn't earn you eternal life. As the venerable 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith puts it, chapter 16, paragraph 2, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. These things don't make us Christians. You have to understand that. Our works and deeds, our tasks and efforts, our sowing and reaping, none of that makes you a Christian. Only God makes Christians. Only Christ can make a Christian. But our works do reveal us to be Christians. Just as an apricot reveals the sort of tree it is, so likewise our lives reveal the sort of people we are. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of this coming harvest, this harvest of corruption or eternal life, I would warn you, even as Paul warned the churches of Galatia, he warns them in verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Don't be duped, church. Don't be fooled into thinking that you can sow to the flesh and reap of the Spirit. 
Don't be so lulled to sleep that you think you can plant cucumbers and reap tuna fish. That's not, that's not how it works. What you sow, you will reap. So I'm going to return to the question that I've already asked a couple of times because it is very important. Are you sowing to the flesh or the spirit? Maybe to really dig, we can ask it this way. What are you giving your time, treasure, and talents to? Because that is sowing, isn't it? Are you giving of your time and treasure and talents to the flesh and to the kingdom of this world? Or are you giving your time, treasure, and talents to the Spirit and the kingdom of Christ? Where are you planting? And as you and I are wrestling with these very heavy and significant questions, we must have our wits about us. To return to Paul's caution in verse 7, Let's not be fooled. Let's not be fooled. God is not only not mocked, but Satan is also a liar. And one of Satan's tactics is this. He specializes in convincing us that sin is not that big of a deal, that heaven is boring, that hell ain't so bad, and that the gospel really isn't all that urgent. I would submit to you, that is the wool that is being pulled over the eyes of so many. Sin is nothing that you need to worry about. Heaven is boring. Hell is a party. And the gospel is something that you can push off. But the truth is, sin is awful. Heaven is glorious. Hell is terrifying. And the gospel is the single most important news in all of the world. Do not be deceived. And so I want to encourage you this morning, Christian. I want to encourage you to not give up. I want to encourage you to press on. Or as verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In due season. You see, that's the thing about planting and reaping and harvests. They take time, don't they? None of you go out to your garden, sow the seed, and then walk out to the shed, pull up a lawn chair, and park it right there, and expect some little green thing to poke its head out of the soil after an hour and a half. And none of you do that, because you all know that these things take time. Well, the same is true spiritually. Mark my words, you are going to face difficulty. The Christian is not immune to those such things. Discouragement, for example, is altogether real, and sometimes it is even paralyzing. And spoiler alert, You are not in resurrection glory yet. Which means, dang it is right, sister, which means you are going to sin. You know who else is going to sin? Your wife or your husband. Your kids are going to sin against you. I'm going to sin against you. Look around. 
All these people are going to sin against you. This is what it means to live, unfortunately, in a fallen and broken world. There's shrapnel and there's collateral damage. We often step on sin landmines. And as a result, people get mangled. I'm not making light of that. I'm just, we have to recognize that that's the world that we live in. And so it's in light of that that I would, parroting the apostle here, tell you, brother or sister, that you can't give up. That you mustn't, verse 9, grow weary of doing good. And of course, that implies what? That there's a temptation there to grow weary. That we do grow weary. That life is hard. That sin is ugly. And that it is not uncommon for Christians to want to wave the white flag. That's real life. We've all been there. Some of us live there. Don't grow weary, though. Don't give up. You have to continue to till. You have to continue to plant and sow. You have to continue to walk in the Spirit. And you have to continue to seek to obey Christ. Christian, set your affections upon the Lord Jesus. Put one foot in front of the other and continue to do the things that God has called you to do. As the end of verse 9 says again, don't give up. And don't give up because verse 9 promises what? In due season, there is coming a time you will reap. Redeeming grace, there is a harvest coming, and what you will reap is eternal life. That should be enough to propel us to move on, to not give up, to not grow weary, to continue to do the things that God has called us to do. And so until then, until harvest time, Continue to do good. Isn't that what verse 10 says? So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good. Well, to who? To everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Christian, sometimes we get so turned around. We want to know God's will for our life. What am I supposed to do? How am I, and those are all good questions, and I think the impulse is righteous. We should all desire to please Christ, and we should all desire when we come before a fork in the road to try to discern God's will and know which way would God have me to go, left or right. But, but sometimes Christians can sort of get this whole paralysis by analysis, Sometimes we're sort of expecting God to sort of whisper in our ear and tell us, well, this is where you should buy your groceries, and this is the kind of bread you should buy, and this is it. We shouldn't expect those things. We should zoom out and go, well, what would God have me to do with my life? To do good. To do good. Love those around you. Serve others. Walk in the Spirit. Esteem others better than yourself. 
forgive one another. Like, really forgive them. And I've said this before. You can know if you have forgiven someone how. You can know you've forgiven them because when you see them at Walmart across the aisle and you see them before they see you, what's your first impulse? Is it to duck and go back behind the aisle so they don't see you? Or is it to continue on your path? That's how you know you've forgiven someone. Can you hug them at Walmart? Devote yourself to what counts for eternity. Help people who are around you. Believe the gospel. Be committed to the church. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And you better believe there's occasion to weep with those who weep. Invite people into your home. Give generously and sacrificially. Pray for others. Disciple one another. Evangelize your neighbors. Spend time with widows. Aid single moms. Be patient with those in the church who do and think differently than you. And rest in the utter sufficiency of Christ crucified for you. And as you do all of this, do so looking forward to the day when you will reap what you have sown. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Father in heaven, we pray for your spirit to attend our weary and hard hearts. We are a people who are, again, prone to rebel against you, prone to grow weary, prone to give up, prone to wave the white flag. We pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us this day to, to, to see Christ afresh, to see our Savior, that the glories of eternal life would entice our hearts to put one foot in front of the other. In all of this, we pray that we would rest in Christ, who is our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen.